Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. This week we're going to discuss how do you influence product paradigm shifts. One technical example is building a product to be more green or having like a green initiative or not necessarily an initiative, but building a product that has traditionally not been having that be a priority for it or, or a benefit of it to be one of the benefits of the product without creating a focused initiative. That is a very mouthful of words there. It's interesting to see this, I want to say come up again, because I'm seeing companies go through these cycles of talking about being more green. And this is the same stuff I saw 15 years ago, almost 16 years ago, I was applying to business school. I was going to go to a green MBA program, that triple bottom line. That was the thing back then. And then that kind of faded for a bit and then came back and then it faded. And so this is yet another cycle of it being important. Meanwhile, the world has changed in all this time. Cloud computing wasn't what it is now. In a way, we've actually gotten worse about carbon footprint because all of these spinning disks take electricity, which takes some form of carbon to get going. Yeah, so there's these trends, these macro trends that kind of ebb and flow within, it sounds like, decades of innovation and technology. It'll kind of, what is the flavor of the week or the flavor of the year, the decade, right, of the thing to focus on? Maybe I can actually reword the statement. How do you actually influence doing good? How do you actually influence, and then what is good and kind of the value system there? Like, how do you in, influence the value system into your product and how you execute? I think we can do that on a team right? We can build the, the value system that we care about into the way we operate and care for each other and take mental time off and all the kind of collaboration touch points. But how do you actually influence your product with the, your value system of good or doing good? Well, I think one of the first things is to talk about your values early and often. If you're in an organization where values are not being talked about, then you know they're vague at best. They might be well understood in a tacit way, but that's not going to change culture. Changing it is the intention. You talk about what it is, what you value, then do things that demonstrate that. To quote D. Hawk's definition of leadership, it's to go before and show the way. If your product, for example, and not just your value system is not aligned today with that new value system or the new alignment around our value system, do you actually build that into the roadmap to get to that healthy state? It's almost like a KPI and a key result. The way that I see this is like, this is a behavioral change that we want to influence our product to get to our value system. So we actually have to make a concerted effort here. Versus just inherently build it into our day to day. Because if we treat it just like that, it might not actually make a difference as much as we are hoping to. So maybe it's a conversation. You start with that conversation. How do we want to treat this? If we're not there today, how can we get there? And then is that a concerted initiative that we go pursue? Let's say you have gotten a clear picture on values. You then have to look at what gets in the way of that structurally. What kind of incentives are in place that go against those values? Because incentives are going to win out. And some incentives are explicit and some are not. I've seen issues in the past where, well, it's, it's pretty typical. Somebody in product is like, why did sales promise that? Why did sales sell that? And it's very simple. It's because sales makes money on closing a deal, not on the success of what that deal provides. If sales' incentives were based on the success of what they're selling, like 
you sold it, but it tanked, therefore you're not getting your money, well, you're going to see very different behavior. So it's often the case that orgs are shooting themselves in the foot by having incentives that are out of whack with what they say they want to do. Interesting. I love that. So let's really evaluate this as a leadership team. Let's say if this is coming down from the leadership team or at least influenced by that, we want to make this one of our new value systems and we get alignment with the company. This is the direction we want to head in. Let's take that opportunity to just reevaluate the environment that we have today and does it support that value that we want to pursue or not. And then if it doesn't, let's make some changes, right? Let's make the changes to the incentive structure that supports our value system. Yeah. When your internal values or just sort of the intrinsic values that are stated either as individuals or as an organization are different than the external incentives, that creates tension. When that tension is small, you can get creative with it. That's a creative tension. When that tension is great, it's a destructive tension. Something has to give. And if you're smart about it, you can destroy those incentives that don't fit, that create the tension. Let's use this as an exercise to work through and help me out here. But Mm. let's say that we want to become a carbon neutral company Mm. in 2023. And our current incentive structure is whether or not we hit our revenue goals for the board. Now, that is not aligned necessarily with becoming green, but we still also have to be a profitable business and grow. And so then do you kind of have some blend? Is it like, hey, we have to hit our goals and we have to do this? Is it this or that? Or is it a combination? Or The first thing you have to do, and I say this in a jocular tone, but I'm actually pretty dead serious. You have to say out loud that you disagree with what Milton Friedman said about the only job of a business being to maximize profit for the shareholders. It was an untrue statement and it's part of what has created a huge incentive structure in our entire economy to do really, let's say, short-sighted things. So you have to reject that, which means you're taking away the foundation. And by doing that, you are going to get out of step with some people's expectations. So communicating that, being explicit, this is what we're doing. And test that out. See if you can even survive making that statement. And then creating different incentives. So if it's trying to be green, what a lot of companies do is they they do things to offset their activities. But it's very easy when you create a market definition for bad behavior that you can pay off. Then you're like, oh, that's a bargain. I can just keep paying it off. And in fact, I can behave worse. This is actually where the Protestant revolution came from. It was because people were selling ways to get out of sin and it eventually was too much, right? There's changing the incentives. A lot of companies, their approach is, uh, we're just going to offset it. And so they can just pay their way, get out of jail free card kind of thing. And what's more important is to subtract altogether to reduce that. The stuff that my team does with data archaeology and looking at people's tech estates and how they're operating, one of the results is we'll look at what's over-provisioned, what is excess capacity, that's just a waste. Because it's not only a waste of money in your hyperscaler bills, it's also a waste of spinning disks and all the electricity that goes into that. So if you can scale up and scale down as needed, if you can subtract all that, you're not only saving money, but it is saving electricity and it's saving carbon in the process. And that's not having to pay for any offsets. I think there's a lot you can do starting with economic incentives because we pay for electricity, we pay for resources. Let's find a way to pay less by using less resources. You don't even have to appeal to people's morals or values to do that. That'd be a pragmatic approach. In that case, what you're saying is being able to measure it to begin with, or at least to be aware of it, then helps us treat it differently? Or are you saying something more actionable or influenceable of like, hey, you're going to pay for this thing? And 
that kind of get, puts away not. It, it's more like doing a more true cost accounting. What are we really paying for? You know, if we're going to waste money or if we're going to stop wasting money and we have some areas to choose from, let's start with the area that also is a waste of carbon emissions. How can you double dip? And you can take that so far. And then it's looking at what of our practices could be done differently. There was a woman who invented that little plastic. It looks like a Barbie patio furniture that goes in the pizza box and keeps the box from collapsing on your pizza. You don't really see those as much because places like Domino's have restructured their boxes so that that takes the place of that piece of plastic. So suddenly there's all this plastic that doesn't have to be produced. Amazon is reducing the materials that go into their shipping boxes. You know, it costs right, right. money to retool. It costs money to redesign that. There's an upfront cost. But, you know, I'm pretty sure they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. I think they're seeing a return on that. And you get to put it. You get to put it on the box that you know, this is using less material. If you can check off both, great. And if not, maybe there's some sort of also benefit of perception, this this perceived value yeah. that you're, you're gaining from a customer standpoint. Yeah. And I think it's important for that to be one of the last things you do, not the first. Because if you make that the goal, then you can get there without really doing much of anything. I love that. Well, that's, that's some good stuff to chew on. It almost makes me think of going back to the OKR structure, how to apply a goal-oriented strategic execution process in a company to be focused on the goals and not necessarily the revenue. If one of those goals mm. are being a green company or actually accomplishing that, then the incentive structure can actually be aligned with what percentage of the OKR that you hit potentially because then that is something that is measurable and then it is kind of, you can pick and choose the flavor of the year for the company, right? Of what makes sense to, for the company to then strive towards and incentivize that. I guess it makes sense to me. I don't know if that would backfire, but or other companies do it in that way. I mean, you're, you're rewiring the incentives when you do that. OKRs are a form of incentive. Even if all you get is to keep your job and a pat on the back. In the right environment, that's yeah. a lot, like today's economy. You can, you can have OKRs around increasing yeah. something or another, but don't forget to subtract. So maybe you have an OKR around reducing yeah. a certain thing. You know, maybe you have costs, like if it's boxes, and maybe you can reduce your costs by 10%, but the real goal is reducing the materials. Mm. Maybe you can reduce, you know, maybe it takes a 50% reduction in materials to get a 10% savings. But if the materials reduction is the goal, cool. And if along the way you save costs, great. You know, you might have a caveat that, you know, hold costs even and reduce materials and anything but beyond that is gravy. Or you might say, you know, hold revenues even and reduce carbon emissions. Right. It seems like you'll get to the point where there'll be a tie break and you have to make the decision. And however the company is yeah. incentivized will make that decision for you. Or at least you have to make that clear for the organization, right? Yeah. Now, there are interesting sort of, I'll say, fractal economy forces at play. So some of the things that we see at a macroeconomic level, we'll see at a microeconomic level as well. So the U.S., has been a huge polluter and a huge contributor to greenhouse emissions forever. And we built this economy doing that. So now people are whining about, well, these other countries are doing that now. Well, yeah, that's how they're building their economy. If you're a company like Amazon or Apple and you can design sustainability into your processes from the very beginning because you have the resources to own that entire chain, cool. 
But if you're a startup and you own, you have no vertical integration whatsoever, you might have to be wasteful while you're searching for a problem solution fit, a product market fit. Once you're at that rounding the corner and heading up along that hockey stick, the earlier along in that process that you're thinking about scalable solutions that include less waste, the cheaper it is to do that. It's the same with if you just think about building accessibility into your yeah, products. That's your a great website. example. The further down the road you go, the more expensive accessibility is. It's free at the beginning. If you just follow <laughs> the guidelines, make everything legible, make you know, use make things semantic, make things readable, all the forms of accessibility. If you're thinking about it at the beginning and you just operate within those constraints, it's free. Now, it might be a little expensive to find a designer who's able to do that, who's yeah. familiar with it. It's the investment that you're making into the impact that it's going to have. Yeah, this was a this was a fun conversation. It kind of took some interesting angles to it. If we were to give some homework to our listeners on this, what would you want to provide to them? I think the homework here is to look around and see what you could subtract. Are there corners you can trim, not to get cheap, but to reduce waste, to reduce whatever it is? Literally could be cutting corners. If the thing is round, does it need a square box? Is there some other thing? It could be process. Is there a part of your bureaucracy that no longer serves a purpose, but wastes hours, wastes resources in some way? I love that. Yeah, I would say reevaluate the incentive structure to support your value system is one of the big things. Taking a look at and making sure that those things are aligned. Walk the talk, right? If, if this is something that is your identity as a business, as a product person, as a team, as a product, then make sure that the things contributing to that value are assessed and evaluated and corrected or rethought if need be. Awesome. Thank you, Tosh. Fun conversation. Yeah. It was good uh, catching up. Looks like we finished up our coffee, so go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover. And who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.